Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, and we have another bonus episode for today, and we'll be speaking with John Harbison, who was the winner of the 1987 Pulitzer Prize in Music for his piece, The Flight into Egypt. Mr. Harbison, welcome, and we're looking forward to speaking with you today. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, let's begin by talking about your training. Uh, You came from a musical family, and so was it preordained that you would go into music? Because you also played many instruments from piano and violin and tuba. So what was your upbringing in music? I did have a musical family on on both sides, but not professional musicians. I had an uncle who was a songwriter and writer of musical shows. Um, My father also wrote uh, some compositions when he was young and eventually pop songs. all really all through his life and played the piano well. My mother also played and sang well. Uh, but I guess the, well, actually I'm forgetting actually, I did have one sibling, my sister, Helen, Helen Abrahamian, who became a professional cellist. So there were eventually two of us who were out there earning our earning our living as, uh, as musicians. And uh, she was one of the co-founders of the Tecapo Chamber Players and, and eventually... Oh, wow also moved to Boston and played here for a long time. So there was a lot of music in the house, particularly from the phonograph, from the record player. I could find my way around when I was pretty young, new things I wanted to hear. That was really kind of where I sort of just became engaged with sort of finding my way through what I wanted to do. And that's a lot of time at the piano making up pieces. So what was the music that was around your family? Because you mentioned that you had a father who was composing and writing songs and an uncle who's writing musical shows. Uh, what all were the kind of musics that you were engaged with uh, when you were growing up? There was a standard pop uh, sort of American songbooks, that kind of thing that my dad would play. He also played most of the pieces in the Buzoni transcriptions of the Bach, of the chorales, the Schubert chorales. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew those really very well from the very earliest. And that may have been the music that impressed me the most. I have somewhere in my sort of saved articles, precious old saved articles, a, a version he made of me the uh, made for me to play when I was just a, I was six year old player, of the Vakadalf Chorale movement from the Shubala Chorales, uh, simplification, pretty cleverly done actually. I think he changed the key and made it a little bit. So obviously I was I was following what he was playing quite carefully from a really early time. And we read that you're writing a tuba concerto. So how did you end up playing the tuba? I was always interested in the tuba, the sound of it. I guess I got to a certain point in high school where I thought I needed to know something about playing brass. So I just went in and I said uh, what to the band director and I said, what instrument do you need? Said, we don't have anybody playing tuba. So I said, okay. And in those days in high school, they had this, I guess a lot of high schools uh, had the system that certain periods that would be sort of study hall periods could become practice. So unlike almost every other instrument I ever learned to play, the, the practice hours were extremely regular. And I got quite good on the instrument to my great surprise, because I never imagined myself sort of racing around on a tuba. My rehearsal room was the was the, the girls' restroom on the second floor of the high school 
which was of course supposedly not in use during these practice hours, but occasionally somebody didn't didn't understand that. But it's it, quite a surprise coming in. <laughs> it was a real sound because you know in in the, on those kinds of walls a tuba really resounds. Mm -hmm. I got this amazing sense of of the amplitude of my sound, which I and it got so I really I kind of really did love the instrument. My wife told me that in my early orchestral writing that I overdid the tuba for a while <laughs> <laughs> because I kept wanting to hear it you know but it was incredibly fun to play and uh, I achieved a better level maybe professionally on that instrument than on my primary instruments which would be piano and viola I think simply because it was a daily I was never disciplined enough to play my to practice my viola every day. Whereas the if that if the school said it's such such an hour a day, I was going to show up in the girls' restroom and play the tuba. I was there, <laughs> and I moved ahead very well. It's ever since then been something that's been borne out. I mean, when you can when you can go at a stretch very concentratedly, there's uh, certainly in the compositional situation, it's it's always an advantage. Well, if I can jump in, it, it's that approach to uh, learning instruments and playing different instruments as needed sounds a lot like uh, the philosophy of one of your teachers. I'm doing a lot of research right now on Walter Piston, and we're curious to know, you grew up next to Princeton, but why did you choose Harvard for your musical training? And then what did you learn from studying with Piston, who, as we know, is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner? Yeah, yeah. Uh... I chose it because I thought I needed to get out of town. And because as a high school kid, I, I already knew some of the of the composers that, that were teaching at Princeton. My dad knew them because he was on the faculty in, in history. So I thought it, it would just be a different experience. I also felt something about the culture. I, I made one visit to Cambridge. I remember having played in the University Orchestra when I was in high school. I played in the Princeton Symphony, Princeton University Orchestra, just wanted to play the repertoire and my teacher was the conductor. I remember people at Princeton, the, my colleagues in that orchestra, sort of string players kind of sneaking around because it wasn't cool to play string instrument. You know? So I thought I want to go somewhere where you don't have to sneak around with your violin case. <laughs> so I took a trip to Cambridge and I wandered around the campus and I saw a lot of people walking around with violin cases. And I thought, okay, I can, I, 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 this will be fine. And because there was then a, an interfaculty agreement, uh, a kind of break on tuition for a whole bunch of universities that were linked up, hmm. uh, it also was doable for my family. Because in you know in those days, professorial salaries, we think of them now as uh, perhaps modest on some world scale, but they were very modest. <laughs> so a lot of the decision was about where I could afford to go. I'm glad I made that decision. I, I carried my viola anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, eventually there was a, a lot of uh, do-it-yourself music at Harvard. Undergraduate-generated kind of music. Eventually became conductor of an orchestra called Bach Society Orchestra there. And did a lot of things, I think, that were really kind of native to the way they thought about music. A lot of organization of peculiar, fascinating things. We did a student student reading of the entire score of Don Giovanni, student players and singers, all of us singing horribly, I, you know, but, but <laughs> something about the energy around something like that, mm -hmm. that I, I found was 
was somewhat inherent in the way people were thinking about music. And the fact that the faculty, including Piston, was somewhat Olympian, we didn't really know them, uh, I would say, uh, outside of the class, certainly not Piston, who was very laconic and spare in his comments and sort of he had this persona which i don't i think was kind of invented because it's sort of a, a yankee kind of cracker you know <laughs> <laughs> he was actually italian from and local guy but his his comments on people's pieces were, were very very brief and i would say very fundamental of course i was hearing his music uh over at boston symphony often in those days uh, had a good sense, and he, and then I finally I did conduct his, uh, his, his sinfonia. He came to the rehearsal and comment, and so that was that was very valuable to all of us. It's not easy to know, you know. He was very harsh one day. He he looked at one of my pieces, and his comment was, "I'm never quite sure exactly what he said, but he said something like, maybe you maybe be able to do something in the pop music field, but I don't think in, in concert.'" Oh, wow! Wow! And, I was very I shaken by that. And a couple yeah. of colleagues, uh, Louise Foskirchen and David Loon were there. Well, they went out afterwards. They said oh, the, he was feeling pretty sharp that day. He's feeling pretty uh, edgy. Hmm. Later, it, I didn't see him again, except I was at Tanglewood as a student and was walking along the road to Lenox just to go in to buy something, or get breakfast or something. And, and he drove by and he gave me a ride. He said, what are you going to be doing? Uh, and I said, I'm going to Europe to study with Boris Blocker. He said, okay, give him my regards, because, you know, every, every composer of that generation <laughs> seemed, seemed to know each other somewhat. Blocker was a particular friend of uh, Roger Sessions, who was, was maybe the senior composer that I, in some ways, grew up knowing because of friendship with his son, John. We played tennis together a lot. And, <laughs> wow. So, so Roger Sessions... My parents did this sort of thing. I gather it was, it was, Sessions told a story about his parents insisting that his music be shown to Puccini when Puccini came to the Met. Oh my gosh! <laughs> apparently, Puccini made some sort of vaguely approving thing about you know, yes, young boys. Okay, he's got down. So that parents <laughs> really pushed that with Sessions because I was hanging around his house, and I was maybe. 12, 13 years old, I'd written some stuff and and he looked at it and he said, he, he directed his comment to my parents, which I guess was probably appropriate. He says, he says the baseline seems fine. <laughs> but actually, that was probably a, a fairly primary thing in terms of what Sessions, Sessions thinking. But there was a lot of music growing up and then a lot of connections through my family growing up with musicians. I would say half of my father's close friends were musicians, partly because he was so interested. He was at every concert. He sang in a faculty barbershop quartet in which he was the only person not in the field of music officially. And so he was, he was kind of a, attached to that community, which brought me in touch with a lot of what was going on in music when I was still in high school around the town, which is probably why I had to even go to another school. We've been talking about Piston uh, as your teacher, and then Roger Sessions, both Pulitzer Prize winners that we've talked about on the on the podcast. But I'm curious about your own teaching career, um, especially your experience teaching at MIT, which is a very different type of institution for studying the arts than, like, say, where um, we're teaching, which is more conservatory based. I'm wondering just about your 
experience as a teacher and what you value in terms of your own teaching? It was always very good feeling to be going in and working with, with students who were so intent on completing every task and so so incredibly focused, which is an MIT. Contrasting it with my sometimes my guest teaching in conservatory or even at Tanglewood, where you had to kind of kick people along sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Mention the deadline and all kinds of stuff like that. That there isn't a lot of that at MIT. There's something uh, so uh, t- task organized about MIT students. It's, it's really can be a great pleasure, even when you ask of them something really quite e- extreme. They they kind of seem to say, "Okay, that's that's great. Let's let's see if we can do that." Mm-hmm. That was about the MIT experience. The thing I take away every day. I thought just it was incredibly interesting to work with people who were never surprised at the uh, let's just say the degree of of work and concentration some task might take. And that was true of coaching chamber music too. I mean, you you really felt that if you had something helpful to say, that that would that would be undertaken. And so I got a little bit, I guess as as a result of my MIT teaching, I got a little more impatient with some of my music field teaching. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a little more loose. And a little bit, maybe we'll listen to you and maybe we won't. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I'd have to say just going along through now, having retired from MIT, I'm going to miss that aspect a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. I wound up the last 10 years there mostly working with the jazz ensembles. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've always been attracting at MIT extraordinary talent. And the same, it was really the same experience. It was people of very, very high development, improvisational and writing skill. But with a with a willingness to to try to gain something really close to a, a kind of polish and fin, and finesse, which mm-hmm. was extremely rewarding. I think all of us at MIT would be charming the same same kind of account of, of what it's like to be there. The downside is probably that there's a lot of pressure. There is just a, that the sort of the atmosphere is extremely forward driven. Mm-hmm. I think some people that's uh, uh, psychologically it can be hard, but the upside is for sure uh, a sense that things can be accomplished and 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 all kinds of surprises come from how how uh, determined people are. And you're lucky to be in Boston too, with such a thriving music scene with all different kinds of. You've got Berkeley, you've got Boston yeah. University, all the different schools, Harvard, everything around there. Yeah, well, one of the advantages of our jazz program at MIT was our close Berkeley Association for instrumental teaching and so forth. Yeah, that's that's a fab. These are extreme, extreme assets. Well, let's move into your 1987 Pulitzer Prize winning work, The Flight into Egypt for solo, soprano and baritone, chorus and chamber orchestra. We know it's based on a biblical story, but uh, we read a quote that you said something about a discussion regarding the darker side of Christmas and how it needs representation, especially in a time of increasing distance between the privileged and the less fortunate. So can you talk a little bit about how that piece came about and that particular sentiment? Well, yeah, the manual music, which had somewhat, well, a bit before this time, had begun to undertake a Bach cantata program. Craig Smith, the music director, and I were very friendly, and he we talked a lot about the, the texts for each week, of course, which followed the, the uh, church day sequence of the 
Lutheran church sequence. In an Episcopal church, that's another story. But, but Craig was saying that that uh, he he felt that in a in a church which had a very very uh, powerful mission to the homeless, and in a season where it was their presence in the church, the homeless people was extremely noticeable. He thought that I should think about uh, some of the of the texts for the, that's for the season, which might deal with with homelessness and displacement, which is what led to my writing a flight into Egypt piece. Uh, not the first or last time that Craig and I sort of had some sort of discussion. The last one we had, he, it was just before he died, he said, you've got to write uh, the encounter with the two Marys after the tombs of opening, so the whole kind of aftermath sequence. And I, I said, yeah, and when can you do it if I do it? Unfortunately, he died then. But he and I did, very often discuss what we felt were under maybe undervisited text opportunities, and I think that flight into Egypt. Well, we found we found for the first program in the sources we expected to find other composers. We found Schütz who dealt with this subject, and of course there is there's there is a, certainly a Bach cantata in which the, the initial impetus is is the, the fleeing of the homeless. So yeah, that's the, the first impetus. And then the first performance was actually not, it was soon at Emmanuel, but it was the first with cantata singers, uh, with a very, two singers who turned out to work with for very many years thereafter. Elaine, Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson was the soprano mm -hmm. and Sanford Sylvan was the baritone, both of them members of the Emmanuel Choir. Well, you've written several works for orchestra and voices on biblical texts. So you this work, of course, is Four Psalms, the Requiem, Abraham. So we're also curious about what attracts you to this performing force and these texts. I think the texts, there's something about both the conciseness and the and the in a really quite uncanny dramatic staging of most of the biblical texts that if one tries to simply underline them and 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 invigorate them i have always loved dealing with the biblical text with no edits sometimes very extended ones i noticed that for the first time the possibility of that in a piece of Stravinsky that i used that i taught about in class abraham and isaac where everything that happens in the text some of it seemingly quite incidental he, Swinsky just keeps going forward. And I think I thought, and, and then I thought I got to, I got interested in some older music that did that. Uh, most likely uh, Shoots or Shine, where the text, even when it's narrative and somewhat thorny, there's some belief that the whole Bible passage needs to stay intact. So I've, I've wound up doing that quite a lot. And, and that does mm -hmm. happen in this piece as well. It's absolutely a, segmented starting at a certain point and then stopping at a certain point but everything else is everything's included that whole idea of the of the piece which is it comes out of the tradition of the illuminated manuscript and also the great tradition of 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 uh, religious painting somebody liked to paint these scenes over and over because there's always something more to say about them something new yeah one of the our favorite things we like to ask Pulitzer Prize winners is how they found out they won. And each person has a different story. Some of them are quite amusing uh, with either not knowing or 
having friends or telling them suddenly that they won or all these different things. So uh, how did you find out that you won the Pulitzer? Well, uh, yeah, mine's not so interesting. Uh, I was, I think I was working or something and, and I phone, a phone call came in and I just thought, well, my wife will get it. And she said, no, I think you should, uh, you should get, you should answer this phone phone call. I said, well, I was very puzzled. I said, why, why are you suddenly saying I should answer this phone call? And that was a phone call saying I'd won the Pulitzer. It was coming really from my publisher who said she was a little bit puzzled that she was even thinking of sending such a short kind of religious oriented church-like piece into the Pulitzer. But she liked it, and she thought that as publisher, that was also something that she should should always be thinking about. And in this case, it was Susan Fader, who was uh, a dream publisher, because she was also a fabulous musician and scholar, and the kind of person in the publishing industry, we don't always, uh, we're not always that lucky. And she had taken really an interest in my trajectory, where I was going, what, what I was going to try next. At that stage, that as a younger composer, I was very, very fortunate to have. So I, I did have the pleasure of this sort of actual after, when we went down to to be actually be uh, in a sort of little ceremony, handed the prize. I remember the photographer said, um, "We want you to be holding a score." So I picked up the score. He says, "He says that's just a little score that doesn't look like anything." So I pulled a complete work segment of the Chopin piano music off, off the shelf. <laughs> he said, that's much better. <laughs> so your your score was not good enough. It had to be. <laughs> so, but apparently for the, for, for the photographs, the, the Chopin volume was a great deal more convincing. <laughs> but, and then of course, Susan Fader said one of the fun things was to go to this little ceremony. We were picked up in a limo. Mm -hmm. I don't think either she or I had ever been of that, of the kind that you used to see in New York in those times of the somebody's getting married or somebody's paid a lot of money is what you were thinking, you know, (laughs) and you wonder who's going to get out of it. But that was fun. (laughs) But I was so lucky. Many Many young composers, I guess, go go into the relationship with a publisher with not nearly the expertise and, and, and high level of sophistication that Susan brought to her job. What did the Pulitzer, winning the Pulitzer mean for you personally, but also what kind of impact do you think it had on your career at that time? I was living in L.A. that year. I just started um, residency with the L.A. Phil. And... It's an organization I grew eventually quite attached to, but not. it was not an easy one to adjust to for a lot of reasons. Um, I eventually also came to great respect for the managing director, Ernest Fleischman, who, an unusual man, he had been a conductor in South Africa, and then he had been a high administrator, I think, with the Royal Philharmonic and maybe a different British orchestra. And he was an old school I make all the decisions. Uh, I know the, the salary of every player. I I handle all the the union talk. I, he was a sovereign director, he, and he was initially kind of difficult person. In fact, difficult enough that we used to send someone into his office when we the the composition folks had something important. We'd send somebody in just to see what his mood was. Bernice blew up. 
leave it for a day. <laughs> um, but eventually I got a better feeling eventually for Ernest because he was so highly qualified and he to run an orchestra. He was, this was no joke. He showed up at every program. He cared about the music that was played. And I, eventually that kind of, I got that vibe very clearly uh, the more I was there. But early on was difficult. So he felt a little bit happier about, about my being there when I got the Pulitzer Prize. Mm. It, to, it improved his mm. mood. <laughs> which I would say was a big factor in yes. trying to get settled in LA, which for somebody who'd never lived in California, it's a lot of adjusting. Eventually I liked it tremendously. Uh, and I liked the people I was working with tremendously, but it, it took a while. And my last actually experience of Ernest was such a wonderful surprise. I was back, out, I was out there. My bass control was being done by the Phil about 20 years later. He was very friendly with the, the the great California patron of music, Betty Freeman. And Betty invited me over. She said, I have this little surprise guest here. And I, to my, it was the surprise. It was, I heard this voice in the back of her house. It was Ernest. <laughs> and my, my, and I had a, but Rosie and I had a great evening with Betty and Ernest. A real kind of California uh, punctuation it was in certain ways. Well, we've heard a bit about your tuba concerto, but what else are you composing these days? My my wonderful, uh, brilliant assistant, Sarah Schaefer, I think has sort of been trying to make sure I, I keep going. Older mm -hmm. composers were not in the minds of people who are who are giving out commissions, most of us, at least talking mm -hmm. to my colleagues. You know, I'm, I'm part of a, the 1938 generation of you know, quite a few people. As I was quite fortunate as we started out in getting really big projects to do, but that's that does wind down. Uh, as we talk to each other, we're both we're pretty much agreeing it winds down. Mm -hmm. So I'm grateful for Sarah coming up for interesting things for me to do. And one of her other hats that she wears is she represents a piano series, piano key, a keyboard series, really in in Madison, for which. She arranged for me to write a clavichord piece. And that's been uh, interesting. It's a very distinctive instrument. Almost nothing about it, I find, can I take for granted in terms of what will sound well and, and what will seem appropriate for the voice of the instrument. So I've enjoyed trying to just get my ear into, into, into what the thing is, is going to do. It's been a good project to have. And then I've been very fortunate all through these last recent years to uh, to retain a very close relationship to Songfest, which is a um, voice and piano emphasis place, uh, at, which is suiting me more and more, uh, and some of the composers that go as well, that is to say, to center on this repertoire, which is in certain European cities has always been a, a necessary part of the existence of the musical world. I mean, Songfest, I must say there's a great deal to keep American composers and singers interested in that medium of voice and piano. And so knowing that there is a song fest pretty much, well, if not in COVID years, but every other time, I've been writing voice and piano pieces because I know that the conclave will happen somewhere and lots of people who want to hear music for voice and piano and who really care about the recital as a as an exciting place to be. I know a lot of composers who are sort of song festers who also feel that they want a, they want a real 
good reason to write voice and fan music. Well, it's wonderful to hear that you're still getting commissions, you're still busy and uh, writing new music, but we want to just thank you for your time today and for your answering of our questions and the generosity of spirit, just giving so much space to us to talk a little bit and reminisce a little bit about your Pulitzer win uh, and the kind of arc of your career. So John Harbison, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very, thanks very much. Till then, keep listening. Thank you.